Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Just ahead on the program, the Fed's December meeting is upon us. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where central banks in Frankfurt and London are considering easing up on interest rate hikes despite the continuing inflationary pressures. I'm Doug Krisner. We look at what's ahead for the Chinese economy. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. We're watching the continual shift in the political landscape after Christian Cinema changes parties. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker, and let's start today's program with the big Fed meeting this coming week. Joining us now to frame the conversation, as always, as events unfold, Bloomberg Global Economics and Policy Editor Michael McKee. Uh, No surprise, we're going to get another rate hike from the Federal Reserve, Mike. Yes, we are. Wouldn't you like it if you knew what Santa or what you were going to get for I kind of know. Hanukkah would, I used to you peek. Know. <laughs> we, we can shake the Fed box, and we know what's inside it, and we know the size. Uh, they've pretty much told us they're going to do 50 basis points, a half percentage point increase, which a year ago would have been considered very large because they hadn't done a 50 basis point move in years. But now that we've had 475s in a row, 50s seems like a slowdown, a significant slowdown to some. But the Fed is continuing to raise interest rates, and that's the important thing, that they keep going higher because they haven't won the battle uh, of inflation yet. Now, I keep asking you this question every time we get together. I'm like a broken record. Are they trying to torpedo the labor market? Is that what they have to do to bring inflation under control? Well, they are trying to shave, shall we say, growth uh, by shaving demand, bring down demand some so that uh, Americans aren't spending as much money, which then translates into less production at the companies that make the things that we're not buying and therefore translates into uh, fewer jobs. Now, the Fed's view is because there are so many job openings, they don't have to torpedo the labor market. They can slow it down. We can see a very small rise in the unemployment rate, and we can get a soft landing. That's their hope. Uh, In the past, they've never been able to manage the increase in unemployment. Once uh, There's a a rule called the SOM rule that once it goes above half a percentage point change, then it takes off to about three percentage points. So uh, The what what rule? I've heard of the Taylor rule. The SOM rule, (laughs) named after Claudia SOM. No, I'm not, (laughs) who, uh, who came up with this when she was at the New York Fed, and it basically any increase in unemployment over uh, half a percentage point would then not stop until you get to uh, 3% 
uh, unemployment rate, and it would bring on a recession. So they haven't been able to do it in the past, but even Claudia Sam says it's a guide, not a promise. So we'll wait and see. Okay. When we're talking about the rate of inflation and the increase, how much of that comes from uh, labor costs? Well, it depends on the category you're looking at, because for service companies, it's about 80% of their overall costs is is the cost of labor. So it is a very big part of services, and services is where the money is going right now. We that's, bought, the, uh, that's the biggest part of the economy. That's right the biggest now, right? part of the economy. But we bought a lot of stuff. We were sort of out of whack for two years because people couldn't go out, so they bought stuff, and, the, and goods inflation went when way up, and then there were shortages and supply chain problems, and that uh, contributed to the inflation that we're seeing. Now there's a shift away from that. Supply chains are normalizing somewhat, and uh, goods prices are not rising anywhere near the cost of services. But as we go out, as we go on vacations and uh, spend money at restaurants, uh, we're seeing inflation there, and that's largely driven by labor costs. They started raising uh, rates earlier this year, and has it started to take effect yet? Certainly, we've seen it in the housing market, I would we've guess. We've seen it in the housing market, and we're seeing little bits of slowdown in consumer spending. Part of the problem for the Fed is there was so much fiscal support from the government during the pandemic that people have a lot of money in the bank that they can keep spending. So demand is not slowing as fast, perhaps, as they hoped it might. Now, the Fed knows that at some point soon, we should start seeing a much bigger impact on consumer demand. But they don't know when, and they don't know how big. And because this is an unusual situation, um, they can't be sure. Also, in the years since uh, we started looking for these lags, uh, the development of companies like Bloomberg and others that provide data on the economy and consumers and companies uh, may have shortened the lags. So that's one reason the Fed wants to dial back its its increases. What do you mean by that? The data, increased visibility with the data has... uh affected the lives. The feedback effects become much faster because companies can see in real time what is happening out there. Okay. To what degree is Jay Powell worried about reputational damage to himself and to the Fed at this point? Well, he's got to be concerned in the sense that the Fed's getting blamed a lot for the inflation rate skyrocketing over the past year much more quickly than uh, the Fed anticipated because they thought that what would end up happening is when everybody went back to work, things would go back to the way they were pre-pandemic, and the inflation they were getting was transitory, which obviously turned out not to be. Now, the consensus is Powell and company have done a good job since then, and so we're waiting to see what kind of longer-term credibility problem they have. Jay Powell would tell you he's not worried about himself. He'd worry about the Fed because if the Fed loses credibility, if people don't think they're going to do what they say they're going to do or that they're not going to get the forecast right, then it's going to be harder for monetary policy to work, and you can get things like either skyrocketing inflation or deflation. So the Fed is going to keep keep their foot on the brake, and that's going to be the big thing to watch in 2023. Markets think the Fed will back down if we start to see unemployment rise, and Powell and company are saying they will not. So we will see what that showdown produces.
And the bond market seems to be saying that there is going to be a recession in 2023. Is that uh, is that what I'm reading? Well, that's a fair interpretation of uh, what you're reading about is the inverted yield curves where longer maturity treasury uh, bonds and notes are uh, the, the interest rate on those is lower than short-run uh, treasuries, and that's because people think that either there's going to be a recession and interest rates will come down across the board, or they think that we're going to achieve the soft landing and inflation will come down. It's a little hard to separate, but the kind of the feeling in the bond market is it's going to be the recession scenario uh, because uh, that's generally what's happened in the past. What's the message that he's going to send at the the Fed policy meeting, and what questions do you have for Chairman Powell? Well, there's going to be sort of two messages. One is that uh, 50 basis points as opposed to 75 does not mean the Fed is loosening its conviction that interest rates have to go up. And two, that it's going to be steady as uh, she goes. He wants to reinforce the idea that the Fed is going to keep raising rates, and they probably aren't going to be done after December. They'll probably do some more in early 2023, but then they're going to leave them there for a very long time. Uh, We heard John Williams, the president of the New York Fed, say last week that he thought it would be throughout 2020 2023 and maybe into 2024. And uh, the bond market, as you pointed out, is not buying that right now. So he, he will be trying to convince them. And I guess the, uh, the, the overriding question for everyone is uh, how high do they think they have to go at, at this point? We'll get a new survey of all of the Fed members, and they'll give us a median dot plot uh, that shows where they think they're going to have to go. But uh, we'd like to get more clarity on that. Remind everybody what their target for inflation is. Well, 2% is the target, and Fed officials think it's still realistic. The most, uh, most economists and the Fed have projected we would get to about three and a half percent by the end of 2023, which is... Uh, in, on the PCE index measurement, not the CPI. It's that's little, the preferred measure for the that's Federal That's the Reserve. preferred measure for the Fed. Now then, after that 3.5, how much harder is it going to be to get down to 2%? That's a big argument uh, among economists at this point. Some think that we could go down very fast and go below, uh, get some disinflation below 2%, and others think it's going to be another year or two after the end of 2023 before you can get there. So that's also started a debate about whether the Fed should raise its target, but Fed's not buying that. All right. The other big number is the the terminal rate. You kind of alluded to that. Where is that right now? Where the Fed winds up? Well, we're at 4% uh, going into the meeting, and the general consensus now is we will get to about 5%. Uh, some members of the open market committee, the the decision makers, think they're going to have to go over five, five to five and a quarter. What Powell and uh, some of the leadership of the Fed have said is we don't know. Um, and there is this consensus out there, and that might be right, but it's not going to keep us from going beyond it if we feel it's necessary. Mike, as always, a pleasure. Michael McKee. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we're going to head to Europe for a look at the next central bank poised to raise interest rates this week. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Coming up, a look at the balance of power in the Senate after Senator Kirsten Sinema's flip to independent. But first, the Federal Reserve isn't the only major central bank meeting in the coming days. In Europe, the Bank of England, the European Central and the Swiss National Bank will all announce rate decisions Thursday as they face massive inflationary pressures. And for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. John, the central banks in London and Frankfurt are both facing double-digit inflation. The Bank of England got a head start on hiking rates a year ago. They're now at their highest level since 2008, while the ECB has been raising borrowing costs at a record pace for its relatively short history. Well, we have our top team of central bank reporters with us to look ahead to this week's decisions. Jan Arando joins us from Frankfurt with eyes on the ECB and Philip Aldrich's here in studio in London watching the Bank of England. To get this conversation started, though, I want to bring you a bit of a chat that we had on Bloomberg Radio with Alex Brazier. He's a former director at the Bank of England, now deputy head of the BlackRock Investment Institute. Let's take a listen. We need to rethink the way central banks are operating these days. They're they're not the cavalry that's riding to the rescue when the economy turns down. They're actually deliberately creating economic damage. And that's because their economies are basically overheating because of supply constraints. And if they want to get inflation all the way down to 2%, they actually need to generate recessions. So that's what central banks are working with. Let's start with you, Philip Aldrich, here in London. Um, The recession may well have already started in the UK. Will the Bank of England be easing up on the monetary breaks, do you think? No. uh, So they raised rates um, three quarters of a point um, in November, and they're expected to raise rates by half a percentage point uh, in December, so it, it's still you know all, all guns blazing. There there is some division though on the committee because uh, two members didn't uh, vote for the three quarter point rise, and one member only wanted a a quarter point increase and warned that you know we um, or both of those members actually are warning that um, you know too aggressive. Uh, future moves will uh, risk extending the recession and making what is projected to be a nasty period over 2023 even even worse. And they think that effectively will do some of the work that rate rises uh, will be are doing. So they, they would like to, 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 to slow down. So the expectation for the moment is 50 basis points, yeah. am I right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's turn to you, Yana, in Frankfurt as well. So the, whereas we're looking at this sort of dilemma about slowing down rate rises here, it seems to be more certain perhaps that the ECB is going to take its foot off the brake. Very much so. Um, what, what we're seeing is that the appetite for um, a third consecutive 75 basis point move has um, has really dwindled. Uh, it's not really there. Um, the market is pricing um, 50 as well, which, um, you know, if you read the, the minutes of the last meeting very closely, uh, which was an argument uh, in their last decision, uh, market expectations. So everything seems to be lining up um, for, for a, a slight slowdown in the pace of tightening to 50. That takes the interest rate, um, of course, to 2%, which is, um, you know, widely in the range of what people consider neutral um, but what might actually even more important for the uh, might actually be even more important for the ECB um, uh, at, at their upcoming meeting is uh, a decision on QT uh, they want to outline uh, key principles for how they how they plan to tackle that um, details probably only arriving at this uh, you know at some point next year uh, but but that in itself is such an important decision uh, the ECB has never done it before and um, 
you know there is probably the one or two bargain uh to be made uh about the pace about the start date um maybe that will feature in the in the rate debate as well who knows um it, it's not going to be straightforward at all because the, of course the ECB's balance sheet is absolutely huge so quantitative tightening could potentially be a, a massive shock to the the euro area um, it could and it couldn't. It's interesting uh, when when you talk to economists and, and watchers in general, they tell you, well, you know, if, if one trillion rolls off the ECB balance sheet in terms of liquidity, that's actually not going to do much, which makes you wonder, of course, um, you know, why was that money out there in the first place? Um, but uh, one other feature that that um, you know we need to take a look at when when we talk about QT is of course the um, the uh, long-term loan initiatives uh, the ECB has uh, you know has uh, has done over the past years. Um, a lot of that money is uh, is expiring. Um, banks have the option to repay. Um, you know, over the next months, um, all the way into into the first half of uh, of next year, and and that in itself might actually remove a lot of liquidity from the system. Um, put QT on top of that, um, it, it makes it makes a decision really really difficult. Um, yeah. But all the more fascinating for us to be watching, of course. Absolutely. Um, back back here in in the UK, of course, the Bank of England already started quantitative tightening. Should we expect to hear more about it this week? It's unlikely. I mean, the, we're we're sort of on a on a trajectory already. Where so bonds are maturing, so they're being rolled off and not being reinvested in gilts. Uh, so that's the passive aspect of quantitative tightening. But we're also doing active quantitative tightening, which is we are we are now selling um, gilts. Uh, which uh, you know at, at market prices to, to to basically shrink the balance sheet. The explanation for that um, is that so in America uh, the the Fed is doing passive quantitative tightening, but because the bonds are rolling off so quickly, they are reducing their balance sheet at a at a rapid pace. Where in the UK are just relying on maturities will reduce the size of the balance sheet relatively slowly. So they're doing the active sales basically to keep up. You know, with the, this kind of pace of tightening that you're seeing w- at the Fed, but it is a more complicated operation. And and uh, the question I'm always wondering about with the, with the QT operations is, they say that quantitative easing, the bank central banks say the quantitative easing was most effective when markets were in periods of volatility. So, um, mm-hmm. and w- they're doing QT at a time when markets are you know seriously volatile at the moment, and yet they say it will have relatively little if any impact on market pricing and market dynamics they're obviously keeping an eye to 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 watch out for disruption but there seems to be some kind of logical inconsistency in their the way the qe works and the way that qt will work obviously it's the it's the same set of gilts one of the volatile volatile events i suppose we've had was everything around the the ill-fated mini budget at the end of september and everything that ever everything that went wrong since then will the bank of england kind of be telling us that that's all over and calmed down now it, it, yes, I think they they've been saying that um, already. I mean, the fact that they did there was a period where people believed that they were not going to press ahead with with the active QT operation because of the level of volatility caused by the mini budget, which which actually caused the long end of the gilt market to completely blow up and needed a rescue operation. But um, so uh, the fact that they then pressed ahead with the QT operation, the active QT was uh, was striking. So they do believe that of, that you know even even at that point the conditions were stable enough to go ahead, and they have proved to be so. So there's certainly no uh, suggestion that they're going to they're going to say anything other than we think that these operations can continue, and we've not seen any any undue stresses so far. 
Mm, okay, well, let's talk about, I suppose, the bigger picture of the, the economic forecast or updates we'll get from these central banks. Um, let's hear from the governor of the Irish Central Bank and member of the ECB's governing council, Gabriel McClough, who's been speaking to Bloomberg in the past few days. We're likely to see the euro area in a technical recession. I suspect that Q4 this year, the one that, that we're in now, we'll see a very slightly negative GDP number Uh, And we're likely to see that for Q1 next year. On the other hand, my expectation is we're not going to see 2023 as a year of uh, recession. Okay, Philip Aldrich, our Bank of England reporter, thank you very much for joining me here in the studio. Thank you to Yana in Frankfurt as well. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. John? All right, Stephen, thanks a lot. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema's switch from Democrat to Independent and Democrats' tenuous grip on the Senate. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Shifting political stance for Democrats even after their big Senate win in Georgia. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Amy. All right, thank you, John. We're coming off a wild week politically with the Democratic win in Georgia, followed by Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema's defection from the Democratic Party. She's now registered as an independent. We got a lot of questions about what might happen next, even just in the next few weeks. Joining me now to talk about this, Bloomberg Capitol Hill reporter Stephen Dennis. Uh, Stephen, thanks for taking the time. It's great to be here. Okay, Senator Cinema has always been a bit of a magvrick. She didn't always toe the Democratic Party line. Why is she doing this now? Yeah, so if you look at the polls, all the polls this year of her standing in Arizona have been terrible with Democrats. You know, there was a poll way back in January showing her getting blown out by Representative Ruben Gallego in a hypothetical primary contest, 74 to 16. Then there was a poll right before the midterm elections by civics that had her at 7% approval among Democratic voters. That, you know, she basically, if she tried to run for re-election as a Democrat, she was going to get primaried and she was going to lose that primary. This might be the only chance for her to try to win re-election is to try to appeal to independent voters, which is a growing election block, and to some Republicans and to moderate Democrats. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be an uphill fight for her. And, and really, this complicates the Democratic uh, efforts to keep their majority, because if she creates a three-way race and splits the Democratic vote, that could uh, make it a lot easier for a Republican candidate, maybe Carrie Lake or somebody else, 
to win that Senate seat in Arizona for the Republicans. So in the short term, it doesn't really change much for the Democrats on Capitol Hill, at least in the Senate. They still have a slim majority, but it is their majority. But that's only in the short term. What you're looking forward to is, what, 2024 and how she's positioning herself there? Exactly. I think that's what this decision was about, was to try to uh, expand her appeal in Arizona to independent voters and to just sort of clear the decks where she's not constantly being asked about her her standing among Democratic primary voters. You know, Gallego slammed her immediately afterwards with a statement for abandoning the Democratic Party and hinted that he's going to run. So, you know, it's kind of creates a bit of a mess for Democrats for their political strategy for 2024. It's a key presidential primary state as well. But uh, she did talk to Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader. She is going to stick with Democrats as far as controlling their control of committees, their ability to subpoena corporations, which is something that Schumer has highlighted. Uh, And... You know, so they'll still technically sort of have a 51-49 majority. Um, for for all practical purposes, it doesn't really change how Washington is going to work the next year or two. But it does change that Democratic political strategy as they try to keep the Senate majority in 2024, which is already looking very tough, because that Senate map is much, much more difficult for them than it was just uh, a few weeks ago. One more question for you, Dennis, before we let you go. Uh, Her strategy for the next couple of years, she said she was not going to caucus with Republicans, but she didn't specifically say she was going to caucus with Democrats. But doesn't she have to if she wants to keep her committee assignments? Does that change? Yeah, no. So basically, she's keeping her committee assignments from a de facto perspective. She's caucusing with Democrats and giving them control of committees. You know, the path for her to win re-election is to keep in the center of American politics and get more things done by bridging the gap between the parties. And certainly, we've got a lot of messy stuff happening next year, debt limit, all kinds of other things. You know, I I suspect she's going to be in the thick of things, uh, all of that, the next two years. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. It's great to be here. Bloomberg Capitol Hill reporter Stephen Dennis with what happens next now that Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona has left the Democratic Party. She is an independent, and we've been watching the national and political implications of the Democratic victory in Georgia. It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. All right, and that was Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia during his victory speech after winning the runoff election in Georgia this past week. During his concession speech, Republican Herschel Walker encouraged his supporters to remain engaged in the political process. We're all winners, and I want to say God is a good God. God bless you guys, and let me tell you, stay together. Continue to believe in our elected official. Always, always cast your votes no matter whatever is happening. Cast your vote. And joining me now to talk about all of this, Bloomberg National political reporter Christian Hall. And Christian, it's important to note you were there in Georgia as all of this was happening. What is your bottom line takeaway from the victory that the Democrats saw in Georgia? 
You know, I think that this is really big for Democrats. Georgia has been a Republican bastion for years and years. And I think a lot of the voter turnout efforts from Democrats really uh, made the state possibly become a swing state. That is probably one of the biggest takeaways from this. That final vote that was coming in between um, Warnock and Walker, uh, 51.4% for Democrat Warnock, 48.6% for Republican Herschel Walker. A clear victory, but not a landslide. That is pretty much as razor thin as you can get without having to force another uh, runoff election. What's your take on what may be at play there? You know, I think that it has been a very Republican state. There have been, you know, restrictive voting rights laws in the state. Um, but also, I think Herschel Walker, part of the reason he didn't win was because he was a deeply flawed candidate. And I think, you know, voters really got in the booth and they had to make a decision, you know. Do you think it put some voters, some Republican voters particularly, who may have otherwise backed Walker in a position of having to hold their nose and vote for the Democrat because Walker was so flawed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you take a look at uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, and she didn't win. She was the Democrat on the ticket. And I think Republicans went in and they voted for Kemp. They liked what they saw with him. And they weren't really sure on Walker. Well, you know what? You talked about Stacey Abrams. Let's get into that just for a minute. Did did uh, her loss in the gubernatorial race uh, to to Kemp, did, did that help Democrats? Did that motivate them to get out the vote even more? Was that some sort of motivation? Well, I, I think you could say that. Mm-hmm. You know, Stacey Abrams really built this political machine, especially amongst black voters in the state of Georgia. You know, traditionally, Democrats focus on the metro areas of Georgia and Atlanta. Um, But I think Stacey Abrams really understood that if you got voters to turn out across the state, if you talk to black voters in smaller towns within the state, you could possibly win. And that's what happened with Democrats. Now, just a sidebar here, going a little bit off track, I want to talk a little more about Stacey Abrams because she seems to be coming more of a political activist, sort of a, I don't want to say kingmaker, she's not there yet, but she knows how to get out the vote. I mean, she has shown that she knows how to mobilize people. Does that look to be her future role in the Democratic Party? Because she didn't win the Democratic uh, uh, race for, or the race rather for uh, governor in Georgia. But it's not as though she doesn't have a role there. Absolutely. I mean, she has done a really good job of working with New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter, you know, really grassroots organizing throughout the state of Georgia in a way that no one else has really done in the past. All right. Thank you so much. Bloomberg National Political Reporter Christian Hall. It was a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. For more of our political news coverage, tune in to Bloomberg's Sound On with Joe Matthew, which you can hear weekday afternoons at 5 Wall Street time, and Balance of Power with David Weston, that's weekdays at noon Wall Street time, all right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. Thanks a lot, Amy. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, what do the easing of COVID restrictions in China mean for the country's economy? I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. 
China is very much in focus this coming week, and reopening is a theme as COVID restrictions ease somewhat. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Doug Krisner. John, in the last week, the Chinese government took major steps in relaxing its COVID zero policy and markets, generally speaking, expressed optimism. But the path of the reopening is far from clear and the government appears to be bracing for a very bumpy process. As an example, last week, as more relaxations were announced, Beijing said prudent monetary policy should be targeted and forceful. What will the shift mean for China and by extension for the global economy in the year ahead? For that, we're pleased to join Bloomberg's chief Asia economics correspondent, Enda Curran, who joins us from Hong Kong. Enda, I wanted to begin with a reopening angle because I think it's fair to say that if, aside from the narrative on inflation, the reopening in China is critical. How China's reopening goes next year is one of the big wild cards, not just for China's economy, but the global economy. So let's be clear in terms of where we are at. Hardly a day goes by at the moment with some new announcements on how the Chinese authorities are changing up their controls on limiting the spread of the disease. Analysts are interpreting these changes, such as relax, relaxations on testing requirements and on quarantine, etc. They're saying this means the government is moving away from strenuous kind of COVID-0 lockdowns. The authorities themselves have, have signaled as much. They're talking about a disease that doesn't, isn't as harmful uh, as previous variants. So that's the story in terms of where they're heading. The big question, though, is we don't know how fast they will get there and how they really will navigate this while also protecting the people. Of course, we know with China, a lot of commentary around an elderly population is still under-vaccinated. And of course, it doesn't have yet the hospital network that other countries like Japan or South Korea has to be able to cope with such an outbreak. So in terms of the consumer, we know that people in China have been suffering not just because of the virus itself and the lockdowns, but economically speaking, what has happened to the property market. When you hear a statement from the PBOC that monetary policy, prudent monetary policy, should be targeted and forceful. It sounds to me like they're ready to do much more in the way of stimulus. It'll be precise and surgical, perhaps, but there's more coming. Fair statement? Fair statement. The messaging is changing. They are sending more support for the economy. The PBOC, for example, has been trying to keep this disciplined line. They haven't been a fan of QE or splurging out to support the economy. But nonetheless, last week, as you mentioned, they came out with a new statement saying that they will come with powerful support for those sectors of the economy that needs it most. But one economist said to me, if they can reopen and move away from COVID zero, it will be the biggest stimulus for China's economy in years. So I mentioned earlier that inflation is obviously the big problem globally. I guess China doesn't really have the same problem. It's not been facing the same level of inflationary pressures as the West has been facing. I'm wondering what this does, the China reopening does to the inflation narrative. What's the impact, do you think? So let's say we're on the basis that China does reopen in 2023. Several economists are already talking about it. That's sooner than expected. So let's say that's good for China's economy. Consumers are out and about again. Uh, Chinese tourists are traveling. Chinese business people and students, of course, are traveling. The impact will be not just on China's domestic economy, but it will mean more Chinese demand for oil, more Chinese demand for aviation capacity around the world, more Chinese 
tourism spending and student spending and, and, and global investment going into every corner of the world economy. The story for next year is inflation is going to slow down around the world because commodity and energy prices have come off. Uh, people are spending less because of all the pressures under under mortgages and under wallet, and of course the favorable favorable base effect. But if you throw a rebounding China into that mix. A lot of economists are saying that will be something of a wild card. It doesn't mean we'll be back to where we were in terms of this year's inflation scare, but it will certainly put a floor under falling prices. And uh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your analysis of the story on China. Enda Kern is a Bloomberg's chief Asia economics correspondent. I'm Doug Krisner. You can catch Bloomberg Daybreak Asia every weeknight here on Bloomberg at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? All right. Thanks, Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.